Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Human Rights Foundation's Dissidents and Dictators podcast. My name is Casey Michelle, and with my indomitable co-host, Alicia Maldonado, we have a phenomenal episode for you today. We're going to be talking about everything from Rwanda and reputation laundering, and especially how and why dictators turn to celebrities to help them as well as the ongoing genocide of Uyghurs in China and how democracies can help unwind the CCP's sprawling efforts to end Uyghur identity as we know it. So stick around because we have a great episode in store. Good morning, Alicia. How are you doing today? I wish I were doing a little bit better. Wish you were doing a little bit better. What's going on? Well, I had a very unsatisfactory breakfast, and then I lost my wallet. Those are the worst (laughs) kinds of breakfasts. Honestly, truly. You know, I was dreaming about an omelet that I could have made myself, but I just didn't. And I purchased one instead, and I got someone else's omelet. And it was not only not the omelet that I wanted, but it was a white omelet with some veg. Well, and that is one of the most unfortunate things I've heard this morning, uh, and I'm sorry you're going through this. I know. Me too. Very sorry for myself. I think I've given myself to at least 1 p.m. to think about the omelet and try to get over it. Well, you know, and while you're feeling sorry for yourself, just remember and just remind yourself that you, know, you may have had a tough morning, yeah. you may have had a tough meal, but I promise you, Alicia, this morning you're not having as tough of a morning, a tough of a time as famous American singer-songwriter, rapper extraordinaire, Kendrick Lamar. Did you see the news about Kendrick Lamar, Alicia? I did, too. Apparently, he's going to be headlining uh, a concert in Rwanda. In Rwanda? Golly. Do you in like Kendrick Kigali. Lamar? Golly, I do like Kendrick Lamar. He is a phenomenal, phenomenal writer, a phenomenal rapper. One of his albums, Good Kid, Mad City from about 11 years ago, got me through some tough times. And I really appreciate it. But never in a thousand years did I think someone like Kendrick Lamar would be going to, of all places, one of the the deepest, darkest dictatorships on the planet in Rwanda. Yeah. It's part of uh, the Global Citizen Festival, uh, part of its latest initiative of Move Africa. So they're going to be uh, doing, hosting some some events, headlining events on the 6th of December. Um... No, not the kind of place that you really want to go to. Well, actually, Alicia, t- tell me about this. And, and again, you know, I don't, I, 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 I'm broadly familiar with the regime in Rwanda. Certainly, I think a lot of folks are, are familiar with the, the, the genocide in Rwanda in the late 20th century. But I don't think a lot of folks are necessarily familiar with the regime that has emerged from that terrible period. Can you tell us a little bit about the ruling regime? And yes. especially the ruling figure at the top of that regime. Paul Kagame. Paul Kagame. Yeah, he's a, a former warlord. He's been in power for, for quite some time. Well, since the year um, 2000. <laughs> since the year 2000, which uh, made me just think of a Joe Jonas, Brothers, Jonas Brothers song, which is, I don't know why I went there. That's okay. We don't have to talk. The Jonas Brothers have not, <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, performed for any dictators. No. Applause for the Jonas Brothers, all three of them. All three of them. You know, the interesting thing about, um, you know, going to Kigali for this sort of concert, I guess, is that not only is it, you know, a place where there's been mass genocides, war crimes, crimes against humanity, but also it's fittingly, along with those things, a place that's devoid of any kind of freedom of artistic expression or creative expression. And so why Kendrick Lamar, why anyone would really want to host any kind of musical events in such a place is beyond me. Um, but also, you know, Rwanda's a police state and ruled by a completely fully authoritarian regime that maintains its grip over power through fear and intimidation and 
There was a very well-known film that came out not long, well, I suppose a little long ago at this point, called Hotel Rwanda. That's right. That, again, I think a lot of folks in perhaps the English-speaking world or, or the West would have seen, you know, centered on a figure uh, named Paul Rusesabagina, who was overseeing a hotel that saved any number of lives. I mean, a hero's hero. Surely, to this day, he is feted, he is applauded, he is treated as one of the proudest citizens of Rwanda, even by this regime, correct? Mm, kind of. Uh, maybe outside of, uh, of Rwanda, he might be appreciated for speaking out against the abuses of Kagame's regime. But as you know, Casey, um, Paul has been a friend of our organization and has spoken at our Oslo Freedom Forums. And he just was released earlier this year after 900-something days in, in prison after he was fooled into getting onto a plane that he thought was headed for Burundi and ended up in Kigali where they arrested him and um, kept him detained, um, tortured, deprived of medications um, for just for speaking out against Kagame's regime from, from his home in America. And again, this is Paul Rusesabagina, the hero of Hotel Rwanda, who has been targeted, who has been tortured, who's been jailed by the regime in Rwanda that, again, is going to be putting on this performance, this concert that Kendrick Lamar is going to be headlining. You know, what's interesting, actually, at least I read last year, there's a fantastic book from a, uh, an academic, a gentleman named Alexander Dukalskis, who's uh, working and um, uh, uh, teaching over in, in Ireland these days. He had a fantastic book. It's called Making the World Safe for Dictatorship. And the broader thrust of the book is that he's looking at these tools and tactics that authoritarian regimes and, and dictatorships around the world go to, the lengths they go to, to improve their image, to launder their image, to whitewash their image and their reputation, not only domestically, but also internationally, make these authoritarians, make these autocrats look not nearly as heinous, not nearly as horrible as they truly are on the ground, as those in those countries truly know that they are. And again, I think, you know, this is part of a far broader conversation, looking at the role and relationships of Western PR firms and, and consultancy firms and even things like law firms that do the kind of legal bidding for these regimes themselves. And I think we are maybe broadly familiar with a lot of these countries that do this, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's the Russias and the, the Chinas of the world. And I, you know, I just pulled up this quote because I thought it was so interesting for me. It's certainly an edification mm -hmm. and an education on, on my part. Let's hear it. Where, again, he's talking about how these regimes around the world are trying, all of them trying, in lockstep to make the world safe, not for democracy and, dem and democratic movements, but for, but for dictatorships. And... One of the things that Dukalskis did, which is really interesting for me, is he centered on Kagame's Rwanda. Mm -hmm. And I have this quote that he says, where he's talking about Rwanda, which, which stands as, this, again, this kind of supposed success story, overcoming the legacies of genocide, constructing this, um, uh, you know, quote-unquote transitioning democracy in Africa that is really a case study in how nations can emerge and push toward democracy. But as, as Dukalskis said, Quote, Rwanda is perhaps the most successful example of authoritarian image management mm. in the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. I mean, just let that th sink in for a moment. Right? We're not talking about Saudi Arabia. We're not talking about you know, Venezuela or, or, or Gabon or Angola. We're not talking about even Hungary or Turkey, let alone Russia and China. We're talking about Rwanda, which has been overlooked, I think, by so many scholars, so many journalists, so many commentators for what the Kagame regime has managed to do both domestically in terms of clamping down on dissent, but beyond that, creating this incredible image 
for itself internationally, that beyond that allows them to target dissidents and critics abroad like Paul, Mm -hmm. like his family, and like those who are allied with Paul in highlighting Kagame's crimes. And again, I think that there is still this reality, there's this realization that hasn't sunk in for so many that, yes, Rwanda has moved significantly from where it was in the late 20th century, but Kagame has overseen the creation of this clear case study in how a regime can transform from a brutal dictatorship into what a lot of folks still see as this kind of budding democracy that is worth visiting, that is worth feting and celebrating, and that is worth donating to and providing foreign aid to um, because of this supposed success story that it presents to the rest of the mm-hmm. world. Yeah, and you see a lot of, you know, Idris Elba has come out praising the you know Rwandan government for trying to um, expand its creative arts industry, especially within, you know, movie and film, and or I guess that's the same, but... Um, so it's pretty good at doing that. And I think it's partially because, and I was talking about this with some folks when we were in Oslo, for some reason, people don't seem to really regard Africa, I don't think, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, but it seems so far away. Um, and also, you hear, it seems like a, the kind of place where you're always hearing about genocides or abuses and wars and famines and things like that, and people just get tired of those sort of narratives and so they kind of just tune out and so it gives people like Kagami the power to kind of control the narrative because there already is one that doesn't look so good to the western world I guess. And then when you have these celebrities jetting in, flying in, setting up shop in these countries, bringing their fans, bringing their audiences and introducing them effectively to these countries that are suffering, that are struggling under these regimes that are effectively a blank slate for those audiences back home don't know the first thing about it, all of a sudden all they're learning is that, oh, this is great. This is a place that would host someone like Kendrick Lamar or someone like Idris Elba or someone like XYZ. And we're, again, we're just talking about celebrities at this point. We're not even talking about things like sports, right? right? I think a lot of folks are familiar with the scandals and things like FIFA or the International Olympic Committee. I think a lot of folks are unfamiliar with the fact that Rwanda, and especially Kagame's regime, has targeted the NBA in the United States of mm. America as the go-to partner on the continent, not just in Central Africa or West Africa or East Africa, but on the entire continent itself, hosting high-level meetings with NBA executives to try to set up on-the-ground leagues. And you see these photos. I tell you, you know, at least... We don't have to go off, off the deep end talking about the NBA, but you see these photos of these executives, mm-hmm. you know, the second in command of the NBA, yucking it up, laughing alongside Paul Kagame. And you see, think to yourself, my goodness, would you do this with any other dictator? Or beyond that, which dictator would you not do this with? I, I don't know that we necessarily need to go down that, that full road right now, but I, I do think it's worth sticking at celebrities for a moment because this is a phenomenon we have seen. Well, you know, I was thinking about time. this earlier and I was trying to decide whether I thought it was ignorance or the love of money. Um, that might be both, and I might add in their gullibility, because if you're going to look at the history of Rwanda and look at Kagame, what Kagame's regime has done, and it's on the record, any simple Google search can bring this up for you in two seconds. So I might throw that in there, but I don't know which one I would go with as the biggest. No, I don't know. I don't know necessarily which one's even worse. Right, given, given that all you have to do is type in. The unholy trifecta. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. But it does remind me, it reminds me, it reminds me of a few years ago, at least I was doing research for my, my, my first book, And I was focusing on the regime in Equatorial Guinea, which Mm. is the longest standing dictatorship in the world, overseen by, again, no adjective can live up to how heinous this regime is. But the son of the longest standing dictator, a guy named Teodoran Obiang, he likes to believe that he's this kind of celebrity in the West himself. 
and he buys the mansions and the cars and he becomes friends with uh, a range of celebrities in the United States of America. And that ends up transforming into him bringing those celebrities to perform at his birthday party, either his 49th or his 50th birthday party. The, the reports are a little bit up in the air, a little confused as to which birthday party it is. But he brings them over to celebrate not just the regime itself, and not even to present and uh, uh, put on a performance for the wider audience in Equatorial Guinea, but his own private birthday party. And I tell you, I was scrolling through his Instagram, and again, this is the beauty of open source research, open right. source, um, you know, uh, intelligence gathering in, in the 21st century. And all you got to do is scroll through the photos and the videos of his birthday party. This guy loves his Instagram. Some of some of the the worst of the worst. I cannot recommend Teodor Nobiang's Instagram enough. But I tell you, seeing. Up there, some of my favorite artists, my favorite rappers, my favorite singers. Names, give me some names. You have Sean Kingston. I right. think a lot of folks remember from his, ooh, I'm not going to sing it, Beautiful Girls. <laughs> oh, why Back not? It, boy, it a what a ballad. What a serenade. You got folks like Jeezy, who has performed with everyone from Beyonce. And I, a little aside, he was part of my, my, my first dance, my, my wedding song. Aww. It's an Usher All song, right. but it features okay. Jeezy. And then the incomparable. The one of a kind, the, 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 the man that no one could compare to, Ludacris himself, Chris Bridges. <laughs> Again, performing on a stage for one of the most kleptocratic, uh, uh, reprehensible figures. While, while three quarters of Equatorial Guinea goes without uh, basic education, basic food, potable water, while infrastructure crumbles, hospitals crumbles, uh, crumble, you know, they perform for the guy who is looting the country dry. Uh, Did it make their, their star so, dim for you a little bit? Oh, it, it does more than that. The star goes out at that point. Yeah. You know, they should know better. This guy has been subject of high-profile Senate investigations in the U.S. Mm -hmm. into transnational money laundering and kleptocracy writ large. I mean, it, was, it goes beyond shame. Um, it is ridiculous that they would ever ever pop up in Equatorial Guinea. And again, but this is the phenomenon that we're talking about of these celebrities touching down in these countries and introducing their audiences to these regimes. Yeah, I just think it's, it's so fascinating that they wouldn't try to at least educate themselves a little bit about the places that they're going. In so much as anyone would look up, we're going to go on a holiday to Morocco. Well, let me look up some things to do. Let me look up the region. How do I spend money there? You know, th these sort of things. So those are just rudimentary. So you'd think that if you are a high-profile celebrity or musician going into these places and know you're getting paid buku bucks to perform for private events, or in this one, it's a headliner event, you'd look into, into what's going on there. And especially for someone like Kendrick Lamar, because Rwanda has clear, on-the-record abuses of torturing actual musicians and you know we actually gave one uh, we have a awful prize for creative descent that we award at our events and we had given one to uh, a Rwandan gospel singer who um, was also a genocide survivor and he died under suspicious circumstances in 2020 um, after writing some music that uh, Kagame thought criticized his regime and that's just one that's one prominent example of of a musician who's who suffered at the hands of Kagame and you'd think uh, just because you're coming from America that it can happen to you, but... There's one other irony in this, and it makes things even worse, frankly. There was, there was... This is kind of the second wave of celebrities we've seen taking part, whether it's in Rwanda or Saudi Arabia or, or elsewhere, helping whitewash the reputations of, 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 these, of these governments, of these leaders, of these dictators. There, there, were, there was kind of a first wave of this phenomenon in the, in the late 2000s, early 2010s, when we saw... Figures like um, uh, 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 like Beyonce mm -hmm. performing for the Gaddafis. Figures like Usher performing for the Gaddafi family in Libya. We saw figures like Hilary Swank, famous right. American actress, uh, attending the birthday party 
wishing a happy birthday to Ramzan Kadyrov, the madman who rules Chechnya, um, or Jennifer Lopez, for that matter, flying all the way to Turkmenistan and yeah. singing happy birthday to the ruling dictator in Turkmenistan. Again, one of the most truly horrific regimes on the planet. Sleep and, at and, night. And, and, and I mentioned that not to put those celebrities necessarily on blast, as it were, but because there was a significant amount of press criticism for these figures flying and performing for these families. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of them had to come out and apologize afterward. Beyonce uh, reportedly donated her funds. Uh, Usher reportedly donated the funds that he made um, uh, uh, as well. And, you know, uh, they, they were at least publicly chagrined. Right. And so we have been through this story before. Um, even just a couple years ago, we had figures, uh, again, rappers like St. John and Tyga, who were reportedly Tyga. going to perform Belarus. in Belarus for the dictator yeah. uh, Lukashenko there. And the Human Rights Foundation publicly called them out. And yeah. you know what? They pulled the plug on that concert. Yes. Yes, they did. So, I mean, I guess we've learned that, you know, it is effective um, to... to uh, educate in that way, but we'd hope that they would do it themselves. No, and, and I will say, just just maybe as, as one final moment, it, it does remind me of another another figure. Um, Sting, <laughs> the man uh, who only needs one name, yep. he, in 2011, um, was slated to perform in Kazakhstan. And I was living in Kazakhstan at the time, and I remember seeing the news first float out that he was scheduled to perform there. And this was amidst gargantuan um, uh, labor rights protests going on. And again, we don't need to go into Kazakhstani politics at the time. Still then overseen by one of the longest standing dictators in the post-Soviet space, Nur-Sultan Nazarbayev, an absolute ogre of a man who, uh, again, the less said about him, the better. But it was, you know, it was, it was very surprising for me that Sting would come and perform uh, while Kazakhstan was going through so many of these certainly domestic turmoils that were, uh, and these strikes and these protests, advocating for, again, basic rights. And I tell you, I don't quite know how this happened, but somehow word got to sting that it was certainly not going to be in his best interest to perform in Kazakhstan, mm. especially given his kind of democratic credentials in the past. And he publicly announced, and again, I want to give him credit, because he did the right thing. He not only pulled the plug in this concert, but he issued an open letter publicly supporting these protesters, publicly supporting these labor rights activists, mm. saying, I stand with them and I will not perform in this country while their rights are being trampled upon. And it was remarkable. And again, credit where it's due. And I bring that up because, I, again, I was living in Kazakhstan at the time and I remember reading the local press coverage. And I, I got to say, it was very unfortunate that they didn't cite his letter. Oh. They didn't cite his, his rationale and his reasoning. They the state paper. It was one of the yes, it was one of the state papers. Instead, they said he had issues with his speakers. Oh, it was a tech issue, and so he would not be coming. Read after between all. the lines. And boy, I hope he got those speakers fixed. But at the end of the day, he didn't come, and he did the right thing, and he has still to this day not performed in Kazakhstan. So credit to Sting. I don't think we can get the licensing for any of his music for a little jingle here, but I I I, I tell you, you know, every breath he takes, <laughs> I applaud him. Well done. So Alicia, I know we've been talking. A lot today about image laundering and especially the role that the Kagame regime plays and how it intersects with other tactics of reputation laundering and, and whitewashing its, its image. But again, it's hardly the only regime, the only government doing so. And in many cases, it's simply following a playbook that others have set up before it. And I'm thinking most especially of countries like China and the CCP, which goes out of its way, goes to maybe even greater lengths than any other country to launder its own image, uh, especially internationally, uh, and certainly in recent years, especially 
to cover up not only its crimes in places like Beijing, smothering dissent, so on and so forth, but also to spin the story and the reality, and in many ways cover up the realities, mm -hmm. of this sprawling concentration camp system that it set up in East Turkestan. By, by, by most metrics, the biggest concentration camp system the world has seen mm -hmm. since the Holocaust, uh, targeting especially Uyghurs as well as other Turkic Muslim minority populations. Right. Um, Alicia, talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, you know, the Uyghur people call it the Uyghur region, and uh, Xinjiang is the Chinese government's term for it. And it's sort of, you know, as a journalist, you know, when I was writing a lot of these things, you know, speaking of, as we were speaking earlier about educating ourselves, you know, I had written that kind of phrase, not knowing that I was perpetuating some sort of um, narrative that, that China wants you we to to perpetuate and, or call it. Um, so that was a lesson for me. And so um, the Uyghurs are in this Uyghur region, and it's just one of the ways in which China is, you know, forcing itself and its name and its um, view of this region and, and these people on the rest of the world um, because they don't want them to exist. And, and, you know, since 2017, they've been, as you said, mentioned, forcing them into concentration camps. And not only that, um, it's, you know, a systematic effort to dehumanize them and eliminate um, their population. They're not allowed to use their native language, which is, you know, different from, you know, Han Chinese. Um, their music is different. Um, they're not allowed to sing it. These, their, the clothing is different. They're not allowed to wear it. Um, and of course, you, how would you do? And when you are chained at the ankles and, and wrists and forced to, you know, pick cotton and make most of the world's clothes. You know, I, I think, thankfully, more folks in the democratic world are slowly waking up and realizing what the CCP has been doing to its Uyghur population, again, as well as other Turkic Muslim minorities like Kazakhs and Kyrgyz and Uzbeks in the region. Uh, and yet, still, there seems to be so little awareness of what those crimes actually look like on the ground. Are, are there any, 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 any policy developments in recent years that have helped mm. shine a light on what's actually taking place? Are, are there any – I mean, again, it's one thing to know about it. That's fine and good. Are there any other successes in terms of pushing back, shining a light, maybe even unwinding some of these concentration camp systems? Yeah, so we have um – you know, Juwahar Elham is a, one of our off speakers, our Oslo Freedom Forum speakers, and she um, actually just wrote about this in The Economist, and she was talking about how policymakers can stand up to Chinese government's mistreatment of Uyghurs. It's in The Economist piece. And so she saw, talks about, in this piece, how we can start by banning imports with forced labor, and she references a law that um, President Joe Biden signed in 2021, which prohibits the goods made in whole or in part of the Uyghur region from entering America known you know, by short as the UFLPA. And she says it's the strongest legislation globally known to address corporate complicity in Uyghur forced labor. And then she gives us some stats. And UFLPA stands for what? The Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. And so she said, talks about how some of those numbers, you know, because, you know, at HRF we talk about this a lot. You know, we try to highlight the fact that, you know, one in five cotton garments worldwide is linked to uh, Uyghur forced labor. And so she gives us some more of the hard stats, um, saying that since the law enforcement began, more than 5,000 shipments worth a value of $1.8 have been detained. And more than half of these have been denied entry into America. And since the UFLPA became into force, China has grown much less cotton in the Uyghur region. And she goes on to say, which I just think is interesting to note, um, China is the world's biggest grower and the key processor of the crop, accounting for 20% of global production by volume. But its output looks set to fall by more than 10% this year. 
And but she also says that the legislation is not enough and that we need to do more. And we need to do more to ensure that no part of the supply chain is directly linked or indirectly linked to Uyghur forced labor. Right. And we're talking again about actual in real time ongoing genocide mm-hmm. aimed at a nation that has been colonized for decades by an imperial dictatorship that has entrenched itself and that seeks to expand its power both domestically and internationally. And there's a quote, and, and again, I think a, a lot of folks realize that, but looking at it again on the ground, there's a quote from Ryan Thumb, who's one of the leading historians on uh, Uyghurs based in the U.S. And he had this quote, he's a professor down at Loyola University now, and he said that East Turkestan, where the Uyghurs are predominantly living, where the concentration camp system exists, quote, has become a police state to rival North Korea with a formalized racism on the order of South African apartheid, end quote. And again, all of this aimed at eliminating Uyghurs mm-hmm. as a separate, distinct nation within China itself. That's right. And, you know, there are all sorts of, the kind of abuses that you would anticipate to find in a concentration camp. But, you know, we have, you know, two uh, women who spoke at our conferences again this year who actually kind of brought to light um, I think for the first time, one of the ladies has written a book, which is the first book that really kind of gets into uh, the first kind of actual account from a Uyghur of what happens in these Uyghur concentration camps. But, you know, we can list some of them. Sexual and gender-based violence, forced sterilization, mass surveillance, torture. Um, the forced sterilization, it is just so... Oh, it's horrific. I mean... Horrific. To, to end, you know, to end that, um, that culture. Well, how do you do that? What's the best way to do that? Make sure they can't have more children. It's... Really un- unfortunate is is putting it lightly, but um, as you say, it is becoming more, you know, people are becoming more cognizant of it. Um, but then it's just always making sure we find a way to, you know, keep sounding the horn, make changes. No, absolutely. You know, it, it's, it reminds me, and again, this is, this is beyond the purview of this conversation, that so many leading organizations and voices in the West and democracies, so on and so forth, again, had ignored this, purposely or otherwise, for so many years. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of just a few years ago, the um, you know supposedly re- reputable consulting firm McKinsey hosting its annual gala staff retreat in East Turkestan. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine hosting it in Germany in 1937. Right. It right. is insane. You know, I suppose they should have consulted someone about the wisdom of that idea. But fast forward to where we are now, because of voices like those right. uh, that you just cited and many others that are finally speaking up, piercing the veil of what the CCP is doing to Uyghurs, to other Turkic Muslim minorities, we've finally seen some progress, not nearly enough, but finally seen some progress on unwinding these concentration camps in China. You know, and Casey, just thinking through that, you know, we can even link it back to what we were talking about earlier to celebrities in a way, because so much of um, our fashion industry is created with forced labor, you know, at the hands of these Uyghurs in concentration camps. So there are higher fashion, you know, labels who actually use some of this cotton. Um, It's hard to try to get all the information about who's who, but you know, at some point, you know, celebrities and probably all of us at some point are wearing clothes that are made by these people. So it's another way of, you know, sticking it to the big man to make these changes and, and not wear the clothes and, and not do the performances. And No, when it comes to knowing where your material is coming from. Yeah. Knowing what you're buying, knowing what you are spending your money on. Because, uh, you know, as someone far wiser than me once said, you know, what you save 
costs them everything. That's right. Yes. One of these days, uh, we'll have to have our colleague, Claudia. She uh, is very passionate about this issue, and she does a lot of work for our uh, HRF on it. And is kind of the head of our Wear Your Values program, which is, you know, makes, really shines a spotlight on, on this issue. We would love to get Claudia on sometime, as well as other HRF. She's an absolute delight. We we'll just let her have the mic the entire time. Everyone we her, work with just is, let her a, go. is an absolute delight. That is uh, true. Especially our delightful producer, Omar. How are you, Omar? Always giving the okay sign. You have a good day? Did you lose your wallet? Did you have a good breakfast? Excellent, okay. Everything's going well for both Omar and myself. All right, well, two out of three. Two out of three. As, right. as famed singer Meatloaf once said, oh, two no. out of three ain't bad. And I will say, Meatloaf uh, never performed for any dictators. I feel like we have very different musical references. Well, you know, I think everyone has a meatloaf reference. I mean, you, a couple episodes ago, you missed my Michael Jackson reference, and that really hurt my heart a lot. Well, to bring things back full circle, the gentleman I was talking about in Equatorial Guinea has the world's <laughs> biggest Michael Jackson memorabilia collection. I don't know if Ludacris oh. was able to see it, but you got to go to Equatorial Guinea to see it. So, How do you even get to Equatorial Guinea? Fly. How, what's the route? I don't know. I'm not going. They have warned me against going. Oh, all right. And on that cheery note, thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you this time same place, same voices next week. See you next week. The Human Rights Foundation is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally with a focus on closed societies. We promote freedom where it's most at risk in countries ruled by authoritarian regimes.